Good morning again. Um, better. We're having some uh, ongoing Zoom problems. So uh, thank you for your patience and thank you everybody for once again tackling the technological aspect of things. So um, the talk today will just be on a recorder. about transition today, and um, this is a favorite story of mine. As, as many of you know, uh, I'm in the midst of a transmission, transmission, not <laughs> 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 true, uh, transition in my work at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, um, stepping down from my position as a core faculty member and passing on responsibilities to new faculty members. We, we had a big, um, not big, but a um, very nice retirement party, not yesterday, but a week ago. And um, I'm, I'm going to remain a part of uh, IBS in a much reduced capacity. I'm finishing up with some thesis students and um, and also supporting the certificate in Soto Zen Studies. Um, I think, as many of us know, being in the midst of transition is demanding. At least this has been for me. There are all the usual duties that I've had, as well as the need to pass on institutional memory, answer innumerable questions and support the new people who are taking on the responsibilities I've had. And then there are the other things to attend to, uh, preparing for and doing Jukai, which uh, Shinchu and I have talked about. Um, my responsibilities here at Ocean Gate and with my Dharma students here and those that are not at Ocean Gate. Um, all the paperwork that comes with retirement and uh, talks I'm giving at non-Ocean Gate events and preparing for uh, presentations in the Soto Zen world at large and uh, just everyday life, you know, groceries and dental appointments and all the usual. So all of this has made even more to uh, clear to me that change is needed, um, how I am structuring my time and my commitments. Uh, retirement from IBS is a part of that, uh, but a deeper reflection is needed. Um, study and reflection of how to change, how to express my care and dedication to the way, what my central responsibilities are, and how to live them out now uh, in this time. As I was considering this, I was reminded the story of Nanda. Some of you might recall that I've talked about Nanda before. Do you remember Nanda? How many of you remember Nanda? Yeah, a lot of numbers. So this will be some of this will be familiar to you. Um, Nanda's story is a part of the Ehe Shingi, the uh, Dogen's 
pure standards of the Zen community. It's a wonderful translation. This translation is by Tygen Layton and Shohaku Okamura, and there are others. Um, it's, uh, this is in the Chiji Shingi, the pure standards for temple administrators. So the Ehe Shingi um, was compiled many years after Dogen's death from a series of essays he wrote. And the Chichi Shingi is thought to have written about 1249, so that would have been when Dogen was about 49 years old and well experienced in the ways of monastic life. So every monastic community has a Shingi. Um, once years ago, as part of my graduate studies, I studied the role of St. Benedict, and um, that's a lovely Shingi, um, although I don't think Benedict would have called it that. Um, and every community has a shingi, has a guidelines for how we live together as a community. The officers in a monastery are those people who take responsibility for supporting the practice of the place. And that includes all aspects of monastic life, including what are um, often considered the most mundane Traditionally, they include the director, the overall administrative head, the Eno, the overseer of the meditation hall, what goes on there and how things are um, done, the Tenzo, the head of the kitchen, the financial officer, and um, the guest manager and others. So the key aspect of these jobs is the willingness to step forward and take responsibility for supporting the community to make that support an expression of one's practice. If you think of the monastery as a place in which we practice every day, day in and day out, it's easy to see how this, the sense of uh, monastic officers uh, extends uh, to Ocean Gate, to our homes, our work, our lives, our community, and how these instructions um, tell us about how we live our lives. Uh, so the, verse, the first thing Dogen says in this essay is that people in these positions are precious and venerable. Um, every time we take responsibility for our community, uh, we center ourselves and what we care for in the whole of the community. We realize our actions are the truth of interdependence. And this is a, a concrete example of the paramita of dana, of giving. This is a generosity in action. And it changes us when we express this generosity, and it changes our communities, and it changes everyone we have contact with. So Dogen tells us that in terms of selecting officers, and this is a very kind of top-down situation, um, those who take these positions should be mature in the way he then tells us the story of Nanda, who, with the help of the Buddha, finds a very human way towards a path of ever-deepening maturity. And Nanda's story is inspiring. I've talked about him at length before, and I want to just focus on one part of the story. Um, as I read this part of Nanda's story again, um, and as we hear it together, uh, we can think of it as a parable, a story that tells us something about ourselves, our relationships, what matters, 
and how it matters. And when we let such stories sink in, they become a part of our minds and hearts, and they reveal themselves to us in different ways over time. This has been my experience as Nanda popped into my head recently. In a way, um, if we think about this story, uh, Nanda is our foolish human self, often walking backwards um, or sideways towards what's most important in our lives, that which transforms us and teaches us who we are and how to be. Uh, Buddha uh, is that which calls us to realization. The aspect of reality or our being that won't let us off the hook. Uh, what Suzuki Roshi called our inmost request. And um, as I've talked about before, there's a kind of trickster quality to this. So let me read you the first part. Um, Buddha knew it was time for Nanda to be ordained as a monk. And so in the gate of Nanda's residence emitted a shining radiance. Nanda said, that is certainly the world honored one. He dispatched a servant to see if this indeed was the world-honored one. Then Nanda wanted to see Buddha for himself. And he said, I'll be right back. (laughs) In this first part, Nanda is curious. The Buddha knows it's time for Nanda to take the path of realization. So this doesn't necessarily literally to be ordained. It means... um, to pay attention to the inmost request that calls to us, maybe even compels us to pay attention to our lives and commit or recommit to what is most important. Nanda's comfortable in his home. He sees the light emitted by the Buddha. He approaches him, but he's cautious. We are curious. Something sparks our curiosity. We feel the need for something more, something deeper. Some shift in our experience causes us to pursue the teachings in a new way, to see things in a new way. We want to know this Buddha, not secondhand through a servant, but ourselves directly. We want to know, we want to see for ourselves. And we also like our comfort. Often we think we can just step out of our lives for a moment and nothing will change. We are sure we'll be right back to our comfortable notions, our comfortable definitions. But something else has taken hold here. Great change and transition can be challenging even when we know it is absolutely right. We sacrifice things in the service of our expanded life. And we know change will call us to see things deeply and pay attention fully. Buddha gives Nanda his bowl. Buddha had Nanda take his begging bowl and fill it with food. 
he returned with the full bowl, but Buddha had already gone. And he gave it to Ananda, who asked, from whom did you get this bowl? And he answered, this bowl is from Buddha. Ananda said, you should give it back to Buddha then. Ananda thereupon went to take the bowl to Buddha. And then this is what happened. Buddha had someone shave Nanda's head. Nanda said to the monk shaving his head, do not hold the blade to the head of king of Jambudvipa. Also he thought to himself, in the morning I will follow the world honored one, but in the evening I'll return home. So, what happens? We think, oh, we can, we can approach awakening on our own terms. Other plans for us. Our deepest request doesn't allow us to stay too comfortable. We say, Don't you know who I am? You can't do that to me. How can you take away my definitions, what has been? Shaving the head in this story is an act of giving up who one has been, how one has been. It is allowing awakening and our inmost request to guide us, not self-identities and habitual roles. This is important. We give up our set notions, our cherished definitions. We enter life as it is. We take a leap. Not a fantasy that we concoct but into an ever-deepening relationship with life and death. And a part of ourselves wants to keep what is known and resists. Even though I obey the world-honored one in the morning, I can go home in the evening. I can manage this process. I can go back to my handy, comfortable identities. Then comes the response from the Buddha. Nanda knew, I mean, Buddha knew his thoughts and magically created a large pit in front of Nanda. So Nanda thought that even to the end of his life, how could he return home? Buddha told Nanda, Buddha told Ananda, not Nanda, Ananda, to make Nanda a temple administrator. Ananda conveyed Buddha's request. Okay. So, he can't turn back. This happens to us. The feeling that even if we want to, we cannot return to who we have been. I think as we go through our practice journey, we come to know this. This irrevocability. Even as we age, I think we know irrevocability if we pay attention. It can feel like a deep pit or like a door opening or like a one-way street or like being gently and firmly herded by something we don't quite understand. Or sometimes something happens in our lives and it is clear that there is just no way to go back. 
in Nanda's case, here we have him stuck in a pit, his head shaved, and he's unable to go home. And what does Buddha do? He makes him a temple administrator. Someone responsible for the welfare and practice of others. Earlier, Dogen had told us that uh, people chosen to be officers in monasteries should be mature in a way. And here we have this fellow who's totally clueless. He's stumbling along. He's in a pit. He just got his head shaved. He doesn't even know what an officer is. But Nanda is asked by Buddha, asked by his inmost request, to take responsibility from the very beginning. Buddha knows, Nanda learns, that caring for the monastery, caring for our lives in this way, caring for our community, taking responsibility, is practice. And it's the means by which we mature. And it is very ordinary. Sweeping, cooking, cleaning toilets, seeing our world, the world of our homes, our neighborhoods, our family, friends, the wider community. We see that. We step into that. We respond. So Nanda is willing. And he's still bargaining. But he's game, and he takes it on. He says, what is a temple administrator? And Nanda says, they check and take care of things inside the temple. Nanda says, what should I do? And Nanda answered, after the monks go to bake for food, you should sweep and moisten the ground, carry firewood, remove cow dung from the clean, to clean the grounds, make sure that nothing has gotten lost, and close the gates after the monks. When evening comes, open the gates, sweep, and wash the toilets. Okay? After the monks left, Nanda wanted to close the gates for the community. He closed the west gate and the east gate opened. Closed the east gate and the west gate opened. He thought, even if something is lost, so you can see him running around. Then he thinks, even if something is lost, when I become king, I will construct 100,000 more good temples than, than there are already. Thereupon he headed back to his home. He was afraid that going by a major road he might meet Buddha returning and so went to a small road. However, there he did not see the Buddha coming back. Nanda hid behind some branches in a tree, but the wind blew them and he was visible. So we can imagine Nanda running back and forth, trying to keep the gates closed, worried about things being stolen, perhaps frustrated, confused, grumpy, feeling defeated, who knows. And then he comes up with a solution. If something is stolen, then in the future when I become king and build hundreds and thousands of temples, that will compensate for the loss. He doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. Tied to the future, thinking of when he will be powerful and make up for the present, he continues to have a view centered on himself. He believes that his own power and future riches will be the answer. Most of all, he is seeing the world through his own eyes only. 
all of us experience this, I think. No matter how hard we try, life has its own way. We make mistakes. We take responsibility. We fall for stories that we tell ourselves. And then we encounter the Buddha. I find myself wishing Fernanda the ex- not the experience of wanting from running from one gate to the other, but the ability to find peace and perhaps even joy in the wind blowing through the monastery and his robe flapping around his legs, to know he is a part of the larger whole, a community where everyone has a role, a responsibility, and an attitude of comradeship. What if Nanda had listened Listen to the sound of his footsteps. Listen to the nature of the gates swinging back and forth. Listen to what was really called for. Let go of his ideas and listen for what his true responsibility to the community was. What if he'd been allowed himself to be taught by the gates and the wind? What if he had laughed with the wind? When I was thinking about this, I was thinking of the Jukai and how we worked together to make it happen. There was more than a little bit of Nanda and the swinging gates as we developed the ceremonies and prepared and enacted the event, an event we cared so much about and for people we cared so much about. Nothing was perfect or completely in shape when we started. We all worked very hard, but there was nothing tight or unforgiving about it, just the opposite. The feeling was one of generosity to each other and to the kaite, to the participants. This was emphasized over and over by all of us, everyone, everyone. It was the theme, it was the main theme of the event. It was so full that it filled the entire temple and reached into the beings of everyone there. This was the welcome we extended. This is the Dharma that we want to serve and maintain for generations to come. It is what nourishes and what sustains and supports us. Supports us to work to address the needs of the world together. I have been thinking about this as I make this complex and demanding transition and reflecting on what is key for me moving forward. Going back to Nanda. Nanda has not seen this yet. And he decides he'd had it. He's going back home and he leaves. But he is afraid of encountering the Buddha facing his deepest being, and so he tries to hide. How often do we do this? Yeah. But it doesn't work. Our true nature is tricky, sneaky, and relentless. And the wind, once again, comes into the picture and reveals him. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness awakening is always there. We cannot hide. 
our inmost request is not satisfied with half-lives. Our deepest need requires the real thing, and that often requires change. So what does the Buddha do when he sees him? He responds compassionately. There's a lot more to this story. Buddha puts Nanda in his sleeve. I've talked about this before. And in a rather Dante-esque way, flies him around all these different realms and shows him different things. But the, um, the key to it is that with the help of the community and the help of Buddha, Nanda develops a practice free from the notions that so confused him, at least for a little while. Nanda learned that Nanda was not a problem, that our inmost request, our awakened nature, will call us with wisdom and compassion in a way that is far deeper, far broader, and more inclusive than our minds can think up. We cannot hide and we do not need to. And transformation occurs in ways we cannot anticipate. So, what do we do? We pay attention. We we learn new ways of being. We let go of what has been and we let the wind whip through the monastery and reveal to us what is most real. This is what we do. This is what we do all the time. This is what we do when we face our lives.